What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Across the economy, we're starting to see signs of a slowdown, and that might not be a bad thing. The latest signs housing is cooling off, plus why Goldman says the strong jobs report actually shows a significant slowdown is happening. Plus, we'll hear from one analyst who says restaurants want a recession. He'll explain and give us the stocks to watch. We'll also look at all the ways the Twitter Elon Musk saga could end. Eight possible outcomes we'll run you through. But first, with stocks under some pressure today and bond yields, Dom, falling precipitously, Dom Chu has our numbers. This idea maybe that the recession is more in play, a slowdown is more in play, all of that leading to that bid for government bonds here on the sovereign side of things. But to Kelly's point, we are down across the board. We're off our worst levels of the day so far, but to give you some idea of how things are shaking out right now, the S&P 500 is at 38.62, down about 37 points. At the highs today, we were still down, but around 19 points. At the lows of the session right now, down roughly 51, to give you an idea of the trading range. So we're tilted a little bit more towards the middle, lower end of that trading range today. The Dow Industrials, the outperformer, only down about one-third of 1%, 31 240 the last trade there in the Nasdaq composite 11,412 down 222 points or roughly 2%. So the real underperformer there. What's driving that Nasdaq composite trade is some real weakness in some key names that are tried tied to the most important sectors in the S&P 500. Among the worst performers today, consumer discretionary down nearly two and a half percent, communication services down two and a half percent, and then technology down a little over one percent. I'm going to throw energy in there only because it's been a momentum sector so far this year. And of course, on the up and downside. However, these four sectors make up about a little over half of the entire S&P 500. So that technology, media trade and consumer discretionary really driving a lot of that downside today in the S&P and the Nasdaq. And then One of the big reasons why, fundamentally speaking, is a call being made today by Laura Martin, the analyst over at Needham, who has now downgraded Meta Platforms, the company formerly known as Facebook, from a neutral rating to an outright sell. And no price target, by the way. She says that at this level, you're better off taking some of the money from here to fund other better kind of positions that you see down the line. Now, this Meta Platforms trade, she says, short-term-wise, There aren't a lot of reasons to be positive on this stock. So I know that, Kelly, you guys will be talking much more about this later on this afternoon, that big call from Laura Martin. But Meta Platform is one of the big reasons why Com Services is a real underperformer so far today, Kel. Yeah, she was the longtime Netflix bear. Now she's moving on to Meta, and we will speak with her in Power Lunch. Dom, thanks. We appreciate it, Dom Chu. Now, although this jobs report Friday was strong on the surface, Goldman Sachs says there's no doubt that a labor market slowdown is underway. Jobless claims are rising, job openings and quits are declining, and the ISM employment indices in manufacturing and services have fallen to contractionary levels. But Goldman's Jan Hatzius is also saying this is the labor market slowdown we need right now. What's the rest of the street saying about the economy? Steve Leisman is here with his rapid update. Steve? Hey, Kelly, thanks. Yeah, the strong jobs report is making it difficult for forecasters to say 
that we're in a recession right now. But economists surveyed by CNBC, along with Goldman, by the way, they continue to see an extended period of below-trend growth along with high inflation. And that extends into 2024. Take a look at the data here. The CNBC rapid update finds a sharp downward revision to the outlook for GDP from above 3% in 2022 uh, in March to just 1.7% now, GDP at 1.3% next year, and 1.5% in 2024. All of those numbers are below what's considered trend or potential growth of 1.8%. On a quarterly basis, the average of 17 forecasts sees below 1% growth this quarter, with only four forecasters so far saying we get another quarter of negative growth. GDP then bounces back a bit in the third, but continues to run below trend for the rest of the year into early next. It is uh, worth noting that there's disagreement about the third quarter. Jeffries and Amherst Pierpont, they see a rebound of 4% or above J.P. Morgan, just 1%. All of this comes along with higher inflation forecasts. Headline PCE inflation is seen uh, a point higher compared with March for this year and a half a point higher for next year. It still doesn't come down to the Fed's 2% target until 20, into 2024. While these forecasts suggest slow growth, most economists, they looked at that strong jobs number on Friday and said, hey, we can't say it's a recession just now, but they aren't ruling it out for the months and quarters ahead, Kelly. They're also saying uh, there's a higher probability of it. Yeah, and to that end, I thought the New York Fed survey this morning was super interesting. A lot of data points that are going to be pertinent for the Fed, for uh, the economy in general. So U.S. consumers now see a 40% chance of recession. That's the highest since April 2020. We obviously were in the pandemic recession then. Their one-year inflation expectations rose to 6.8%. You know that's going to be frowned on by the Fed. But then the three-year view dropped three-tenths to 3.6%. So they also said their outlook for household finances deteriorated. So a lot, a lot of new information here that normally wouldn't be so key, but is at a time like this. Yeah, I, you know that the Fed is watching those inflation expectations very carefully. I think they'll be a little bit heartened to see them coming down on the longer end. Those are the ones that they use to adjust policy for. Um, and, and I think the idea that the average American, even though it's not a very good thing, is thinking there's a higher chance of unemployment. You know, the Fed might be a little bit gratified there, too, that there's some sense that the job market is not quite as hot as it had been before to maybe keep uh, wage and wage negotiations down. The Fed is very concerned that higher wages get embedded into contracts right now, and that would propel inflation further down the road. Yeah, I mean, you could call it almost a Goldilocks report in that sense. There was also some moderation in their spending plans, but it fell from like 9% to 8.5%. So we're still talking about pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, the underlying attitude of the Fed is you have very good unemployment, uh, very low unemployment rate, very good uh, job growth. Uh, it, it's the issue of how much growth is out there uh, and whether or not we end up going negative for a second quarter, have that thing that's called a technical recession. I just don't think right now, uh, uh, Kelly, and you and I have had the pleasure of talking to um, uh, uh, the head of the NBER on this show. Yeah. I don't think he would call a recession with these kind of jobs numbers right here, right now. We'll see what happens in the months ahead. Absolutely. Not the criteria that they look at. Uh, the, some of the real data, not so good, right. but the labor market clearly fine for now. Steve, thanks. We'll leave it there, our yeah. Steve Leesman. Sure. So if Wall Street economists and U.S. households are right to think the odds of a recession are growing, how do you invest? Let's ask Hugh Johnson. He's chairman, CIO, and chief economist at Hugh Johnson Economics. All right, Hugh, what's your latest thinking on the market? Well, my thinking is a little bit more positive than you'll hear from most people. This is a tough one. I think, Kelly, the one thing that you should sort of keep in the back of your mind is 
often when we go through these corrections and we did in 2011 and 2018, 2014, something very much in common, what you do is you get to an emotional extreme. That's a sort of a marketed phenomena. And really what I'm saying is that the markets get pretty undervalued. Everybody does the numbers differently. That's where I come down. It's very undervalued given assumptions about earnings. And the second thing is you get widespread pessimism and that's an emotional extreme. And ordinarily that's followed by, not always, but followed by a move up in stocks. It doesn't come right away, but it comes over time. The average annual rate of return for the market when you get to emotional extremes of this magnitude is about 18% over a six month period. Cross your fingers on that one. So I have to say with that in mind, I have to remain positive, but a lot of this includes assumptions about what's gonna happen to earnings. I'm fine yeah. on interest rates. I'm fine on everything, but uh, the real key right now going forward, the shift is going to be a focus on earnings. And I'm so glad that you said that because obviously this week we kick things off. We hear from J.P. Morgan on Thursday. So you think the market is clearly undervalued because of your view on earnings. So you think the estimates are going to be fine. They're not going to come down from here. We're not going to have a, a big sort of, um, you know, revaluation on that front. Yeah. Yeah, Kelly, you asked the right question, and I wish I had the right answer. I don't know what's going to happen, but I will say this, is that, and going back to some of the things you were talking to Steve about, if I use my assumption on what the economy is going to do in 2022, the later part of 2022 and 23, it carries with it an implication that those earnings are going to hold up. In other words, we're, got, we're talking about roughly, say, 9% this year, maybe 8% next year, those kinds of growth rates and earnings. And they're going to hold together so long as our outlook or forecast for the economy holds together. So what, I think everything's you... fine now. But believe me, it is very tough, Kelly, yeah. as you well know, to keep this uh, to keep optimistic about earnings. But what gives you that confidence? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, for sure. I mean, we heard this from, you know, Gene Munster last week on tech, or we hear it from, you know, different pockets where they say, you know, these estimates have to come down or there's going to be a reset as we move through earnings season. Why do you not think that's going to take place and that it's okay to take at face value, you know, the, the earnings multiples that are earnings estimates that are giving us whatever it is, 15, 16 times multiple on the S&P right now. Yeah, you, you can't take them at face value because we've been through periods like this before and they're going to come down some. But keep in mind, I'm saying we're undervalued and we're undervalued, um, you know, in my judgment, for, with quite a bit. We're talking about upsides for stocks of 6% plus between now and the end of 2022. Uh, in 2023, 8%. So I've got some room for bringing those earnings estimates down. And I think they will come down some. I just don't think they're gonna come down so much that I'm gonna give up on a positive outlook, a generally guardedly positive outlook for stocks in the remainder of 2022 and in 2023. I don't think you're gonna get that much of a downward revision. And I think that's the message we're getting from the markets. Take a look at what the markets did last week and you look at consumer discretionary consumer services and technology stocks bouncing back there's a message there, and the message there is things might start to shift towards the more economically sensitive away from the very defensive sector. So take the message of the market seriously. That's exactly the debate that we've been having is those folks who want to jump out of the defensive trade. We spoke to David Katz about this last week and get more cyclical. Your names, I don't know if I would categorize them as cyclical, but some of your favorites right now are Lowe's, Apple, Google, and NVIDIA. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, I and it's not so much... 
the names being, you know, those are names from those sectors, which are consumer uh, discretionary technology and uh, communication services. So keep in mind the the, the sectors that are going to perform. We got a little bit of a look at, at last week at, at the kinds of things that are going to perform if we see a rebound or a turn in the uh, fortunes for the stock market. Those are the ones that are going to work. You're not going to have staples and utilities and healthcare and real estate do well when we get the rebound that I'm talking about. And remember, emotional extremes, you get a turn. And when you get a turn, you go back to the economically sensitive. And those are the sectors I'm talking about. And those are the stocks I'm talking about. And, and that turn finally is that turn happening, even if the Fed does a 75 basis point rate hike this month? Yes, that's all built into the market. 75 basis points now, 50 basis points in September, a couple of three quarter of points increases in November, December and February of next year. And that's it. And that's built into the market. It's built in not only to the Fed funds rate futures, but it's also built into uh, our forecasts or implied forecasts for longer term interest rates are going to stay between three and 320, three and 3.20%. Yeah. And that's all built into the market. That's already there. I don't worry about that one bit. Well, it's a great take, uh, especially, like I said, at an important time with earnings coming up this week. Hugh, thanks you for bet. your time. You bet. Hugh Johnson. Happy to do. Coming up, Elon Musk telling Twitter he no longer intends to buy the company. But what will actually happen next? We'll walk you through several of the possibilities. Plus, are we starting to see some signs of a cool down in the housing market? The latest numbers and one contrarian bullish call. And as we head to break, let's get a check on some of the big movers in the Nasdaq. You just heard Hugh speaking about a couple of them. Meta, Amazon, Netflix, and Apple all moving to the downside today. Apple, the best relative performer. It's only down two-thirds of 1%. Netflix down 3.5%. Facebook or Meta, almost 4%. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow's down 29 points right now. It's the best performer in a market that has the S&P down three quarters of 1% and the Nasdaq down 1.6% today. Here are some of the movers we're watching. And it's the gaming stocks plummeting after Macau closed its casinos for the first time in more than two years because of COVID. All of the city's 30-plus casinos will be shut for a week as authorities struggle to contain the worst coronavirus outbreak yet there. Wind down 8%. Las Vegas Sands nearly the same. They're among the worst performers in the S&P today. The Chinese tech stocks are also sliding. 
Also, the government there is fining Alibaba, Tencent and other tech companies for violating anti-monopoly regulations and failing to disclose transactions. Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu, Pinduoduo, all moving lower. Pinduoduo is down more than 10 percent. And on a down day for the markets, let's end on one bright spot. Uh, Merck, you just heard it from Joe Terranova, one of the best performers today. Special teams on continued speculation. It's getting closer to acquiring CGen for around $40 billion. It would broaden Merck's lineup of cancer drugs and is expected to close in time for their earnings later this month. Merck up 1.5%, up 20% this year. Now, obviously, also on the move, Twitter. The shares are sliding nearly 9% now after uh, 33, by the way, $33.5 a share. This after Elon Musk says he wants to terminate his deal to buy the company, saying they aren't being truthful about bots and fake accounts. But Twitter isn't going down without a fight and will take Musk to court to enforce the $44 billion deal. So how does this saga end? Is there a chance Musk could walk away paying nothing? Or does Twitter win, forcing either damages or Elon Musk to actually take over? Or Musk could go ahead with the deal anyhow, or maybe another buyer comes along. Joining us now is CNBC.com media and tech reporter Alex Sherman. Alex, what do you think is going to happen here? Oh, you can't ask me that, Kelly. (laughs) You're going to start me to ask a, a deal related to Elon Musk, what I think is going to happen. There is no way that I could really tell you what's going to happen at this point. Uh, It does seem, at least, like we're headed to court. I'll I'll throw that out there. Uh, uh, Twitter has come out and already made a statement uh, saying that it intends to sue for what's called specific performance. This is the legal term du jour. Uh, The idea here meaning that Elon Musk and Twitter already signed a contract for Elon Musk to buy Twitter for $44 billion dollars. And Twitter intends to make sure that Elon Musk buys Twitter for $44 billion. Elon Musk is now trying to back out of that, but it it takes two to terminate. Even though Elon Musk says he wants out, this is why there are a variety of different options here. It's not as simple as Elon Musk saying, hey, I'm out. I'm going to pay a $1 billion break fee. Thank you very much. Twitter also would have to sign off on that, and they haven't. It it looks like the court solution here is, well, maybe let's call it three things. Either Musk wins, doesn't have to do anything, or he has to pay the billion-dollar breakup fee, or he has to pay $44 billion to take over this company. Now, because that's such a, those are extreme outcomes that seem to not be ideal for anybody involved, is there a possibility of a settlement here that could end up with him or someone buying the company at a lower price? Right. So there's two settlements here, uh, two things that I would reasonably say are settlements. One is that there's a negotiated deal where Elon Musk says, look, I'll pay you something more than $1 billion, which is the break fee. I don't know what that number would be. It would have to be high enough so that the Twitter board could argue to its investors that it didn't breach its own fiduciary duty to accept that settlement rather than pushing the case for Elon Musk to buy the company at $44 billion. Because if you take a look at where Twitter is today, Twitter is valued more than $10 billion less than uh, Elon Almost Musk's 20. takeover. Price. It's 25 20. billion right now, yeah. So in order to say, look, we've made the calculation, there's a risk of winning, a risk of losing, whatever that number may be, it would have to be high enough so that they could plausibly argue that to investors to say that was the right course of action. The other way there could be a settlement is if both parties decided, you know what the best thing to do here is? We'll lower the price, we'll still reach a deal, We'll say whatever, again, whatever that number is, $35 billion or some number probably in between where Twitter is today and where Twitter was trading when the deal was consummated. 
and saying, you know what, this seems fair. The market went down. Snap is down 50% from the day that that deal uh, was was signed. Uh, So whatever that number may be, that kind of seems like a win for Elon Musk again, because if Twitter feels like they're on solid legal footing, they could sue and demand he buy the company for $54.20 a share. But then you end up with an owner who conceivably doesn't want to own the company. And what does that mean for the future of Twitter? That seems kind of messy. And also, again, for the, you know, the whole point of the legal system is try to enforce, you know, it's it gets messy. So let me ask this in the early stages of this, when Musk's offer first came out, were there ever any other real suitors out there? People who thought, hey, you know, I wanted Twitter and maybe this was my chance to take a bite at the Apple. No, not that we know of. Uh, And that, again, adds a layer of confusion or messiness here, because if there was another buyer, that would be an obvious next move for Twitter, particularly if that buyer was willing to pay some sort of premium to where Twitter is trading today. I mean, that buyer would have to be a more reliable buyer than Elon Musk. And Twitter must have known that. I mean, Elon Musk has a track record of being an unreliable buyer through his tweet saying he would take Tesla private at $420 per share. Of course, that never happened. And there were punishments for Elon Musk for that. So obviously, Twitter knew, hey, we may be dealing with an unreliable buyer here, but it's still worth it to us, even if he doesn't come through, because we feel like we're on strong enough legal footing that we could, in fact, sue for specific performance. If there was another buyer, they probably would have gone that route several months ago. Do you think at this point there are just teams of people at the SEC or somewhere devoted to just get Elon Musk? Just like they they are just so furious that he's acting this way in public and kind of making a mockery out of the rule of law. Oh, I would have to imagine the the leadership of that entire division uh, privately, if not publicly, think so. And I would also imagine Elon Musk probably thinks so as well. I mean, he certainly uh, thumbs his nose at the SEC whenever he gets a chance to and is not shy about it. No. Uh, yeah, look, this is a this is a major existential question for government, right? What happens if someone truly doesn't care about regulations like this? You can only find someone so much money if they're the wealthiest man in the world. Uh, you know, fines aren't really going to change a person's behavior when they have that that type of money. So the SEC, I'm sure, is scratching his collective head, trying to figure out, is there anything else we can do here? Absolutely. Alex, thanks so much. Uh, We appreciate it today. Thank you. CNBC's Alex Sherman reporting. Still ahead, shares of Starbucks are down 15% since Howard Schultz returned to the company as interim CEO. Now he's out with a list of five bold moves to reinvent the coffee chain with union tensions bubbling up. We have the details ahead. Plus, the biggest market player you've never heard of, managing more money than all the hedge funds combined. An inside look at the entities operating with zero regulatory oversight. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Pretty evenly split as we're near session highs, believe it or not. Still down a couple of points, but Boeing, Disney and Nike are weighing on the index, while Merck, 3M and Visa are leading the way. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Time now for some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. And we're talking shares of Costco up more than 20 percent over the past year. The CEO was on Squawk on the Street this morning with how he's digesting calls for an economic slowdown ahead. Everybody has a different way of explaining recession. Uh, In my view, it's about what you end up with your discretionary income and what you're able to buy. And for a lot of people right now, they are in a recession because they're just trying to survive with just buying gas and making their house payments, rent rent payments. Uh, For people with higher income levels, they still have discretionary income to buy goods. Costco hasn't been immune to inflationary pressures. They've had to raise prices for a number of items, but they did say that $1.50 hot dog and soda combo will not change. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelis now for a CNBC News update. Christina? Yes, it won't change. Good afternoon, everyone. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. One person is dead and five others are wounded after a shooting at a Kansas City bar where off-duty police officers were working security. Details on what caused the disturbance are unknown, but authorities say all three officers returned fire when the shooting occurred. NASA is set to reveal the first images from the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope today at 5 p.m. Eastern with President Biden doing the honor. The event will be live streamed on NASA TV and the images will also be available on NASA's website. NASA's chief Bill Nelson says these will be the deepest images of our universe that have ever been taken. The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City star Jen Shaw pleading guilty in her fraud case. Shaw changed her plea to guilty in connection with the telemarketing fraud scheme that prosecutors said preyed on the elderly. She now faces a maximum penalty of 14 years in prison. And tonight on the news, Shinzo Abe's funeral will be tomorrow, but the investigation into the shooting continues. New details on the motive behind the former prime minister's assassination at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly? Back over here. All right, Christina, thank you, Christina Partsinevelis. Coming up, new signs the housing market is starting to cool, but mortgage rates have fallen sharply the past couple weeks. Will that send a rush of buyers back in? Plus, Zillow down 4% today, but one analyst is upgrading the stock, expecting it to outperform even if housing doesn't. We'll examine that case. The exchange is back in a few. Welcome back to The Exchange. More signs are emerging that the red-hot housing market is starting to cool down. Black Knight reporting mortgage originations fell for a third consecutive month in June. Home price appreciation is dropping as well. Joining me now is Andy Walden. He is vice president of enterprise research and strategy at Black Knight. It's good to see you, Andy. How much of a slowdown are we talking? I mean, it's it's been significant, but not quite enough yet. I mean, if you look at the home price growth rate, we saw the strongest slowing that we've seen since the peak of the market back in 2006 in the month of May. The downside is it would take more than 12 more months of that same level of slowing to get back down to that normal three to five percent rate. So certainly signs of a turn, but still a long way to go. 
why do you think we haven't dropped more? It's it's kind of like putting the, the brakes on a freight train, if you will. I mean, we were running so hot. We were seeing annual home price growth rates above 19%. And, and the market just doesn't turn overnight. So there are certainly signs that we will continue to move downward. Inventory saw its two largest months of building in, in May and June. We've gone from a 67% deficit to a 54% deficit. So we're moving in the right direction. We're still sitting on a very strong deficit uh, of inventory and continues to put upward pressure on prices. You know, you'd think that if you were even a t- thinking about selling, you'd go, well, let me definitely sell now in case the market softens further. Why aren't we seeing a rush of people behaving that way? Yeah, and it, it isn't yet, right? The the reason that inventory is building so far is because of a, a lack of buying or a slowdown in buying. So that's really why you're seeing those inventory levels grow. If you look at the number of homes hitting the market, they're, they're still kind of at those levels that they have been over the last couple of months. So I think as the market or if the market continues to transition, I think you'll see more of that type of mentality take place and more folks kind of decide if now is the right time. But for right now, you're seeing folks hold steady and, and not a whole lot of sale. The, the other reason behind it is, Rising inventory is a detractor from listing activity. If you look at the number of homeowners that are sitting on a 3% interest rate, a 275 interest rate right now, and looking at the potential of selling and having to go buy in a 5 to 6% interest rate environment, it's kind of a, a deterrent for a lot of folks to go out there and, and make that buy-sell type transaction. Yeah, or if you even thought, okay, I'm going to sell and rent. I mean, still the only real play you could do is sell and maybe go to somewhere lower cost. And kind of to that point, The impact of mortgage rates doubling in a very short period of time to levels we haven't seen in 15 or 20 years has been surprisingly not that big so far. Is that because there's still a lot of cash buyers or institutional buyers or this sort of trade down effect I was describing? Yeah, and I I think you will see it. I think it's just going to take some time. I mean, I I think you're going to see varied effects and varied timing across the country. If you look at areas like San Francisco, you're already starting to see those markets turn. San Francisco, San Jose, Boise, Austin. You're starting to see some of that. The the difference is in markets like Florida that are that are some of the hottest markets in the country, you still have those massive inventory deficits. So you are seeing that transitionary activity, the 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 sell and move type of activity. But to some degree, those markets are now becoming unaffordable. And so you're seeing some regressionary aspects there as well. One of the biggest debates on Wall Street, or at least on this show, has been what to do with the home builders when some of them are trading at two and a half, three and four times forward earnings. You know, not that you necessarily are, are, you know, an analyst, but what do you make of the fundamental demand story for new homes in the next six, 12, 18 months at this point? And if you look at undersupply in housing, we've had a, a, an undersupply from a building standpoint for the last 10 years. So I think there still is demand out there. And as I mentioned, we're still 54% short on supply. And so I think there is still room for, for growth there in terms of building and a, a need for uh, additional building out there in the market. But you are starting to see that that landscape shift here over the, the last few months, certainly. Yeah, it just none of it kind of paints a picture to me of a market that's about to fall off a cliff. It sounds like one that's slowing, but you still have this freight train momentum you described. Maybe something I should mention is this point you've made about credit scores, which are dropping. And what are the implications of that? So really, the reason that you're seeing credit scores dropping, and this is on the the lending uh, aspect of the market, is when you see rates fall like they have, you see high credit quality borrowers rush into the market and transact. They're the ones that are out there refinancing the most early on when interest rates hit their record lows. As rates begin to rise, those are borrowers that begin to step away from the market. So it isn't necessarily credit loosening that's causing falling interest rates among lending. It's just uh, cyclical behavior as interest rates move. 
But if you look at the the health of the mortgage market as a whole, the average credit score of somebody that of a mortgage holder in the U.S. right now is still above 750. It's as strong wow. as we've ever seen it. So from that perspective, right, lending is easing a little bit. But from the perspective of the strength and, and stability of homeowners out there, it's as strong as we've ever seen. Very, very interesting. Andy, thanks uh, for letting us check in. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Andy Walden with Black Knight. Speaking of housing and bullish calls, let's take a look at shares of Zillow. The stock is down today despite a call on the street at Wedbush upgrading this name to outperform and raising its price target to 41. Shares are currently just under 34. The analysts saying the closeout of their homes division leaves Zillow in an interesting position with a net cash balance sheet that could lead to share buybacks. They're also saying Zillow has the time and the cash to get the super app right and take market share. Of course, Zillow has had a tough year down 45%. It's still down 71% from its all-time highs, and its market cap is only around $8 billion, down from more than $25 billion in October of 2021. Still ahead on The Exchange, we'll take you inside the $6 trillion world of family offices. They sound cozy, they manage more money than hedge funds, and they don't have to follow all the rules. And we want to show you some of the day's big movers as well. Duolingo uh, down more than 12%. Carvana down 10%. Peloton down nearly that much. And a quick look at the Dow. Despite all of the red we have talked about, it just turned positive to erase a 214-point drop, fighting for a 13-point gain right now. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're going to take a closer look at the growing area of the investing world. Family offices, wealthy families managing their own money. They now manage more money than hedge funds, and they're not regulated, so we know very little about what they're buying. But Robert Frank is here to lift the curtain on family offices, Robert, as part of a new series for CNBC Pro. Is this like Cribs? Uh, not maybe that exciting, but I think it's exciting. I mean, we, we launched this series today with an interview and a big article. That's because family offices are now larger than all the hedge funds in the world and they are competing directly with private equity, venture capital, and wealth management firms. Analysts estimate family offices now manage more than $6 trillion in assets. That's more than the $4 trillion in hedge funds. There are about 10,000 family offices around the world. That's up tenfold from the early 2000s. What's fueling that growth? Well, more wealth at the top and a shift away from wealth managers for families with at least $100 million or more in assets. They're also shifting away in how they invest. They're moving away from publicly traded stocks and hedge funds more toward direct investment. So they're buying companies outright or buying stakes without a middleman. You take a look at MSD Capital. That's tied to the family office of Michael Dell. They recently bought half of the $2.5 billion digital consulting firm West Monroe. A survey by UBS found that family offices still have about a third of their assets in equities, about 20% in private equity, but private equity is by far their fastest growing segment. All this growth, of course, leading to more calls for regulation. After that $20 billion Arcagos blow up last year, Democratic members of Congress are sponsoring bills to require the biggest family offices to at least report their size, their positions, and their executives to the SEC. Family office lobby saying they don't pose a risk to the financial system or individual investors. They also say that regulation actually would not have prevented the Archegos blow up. And you can read the first of our family office investor interviews on CNBC Pro that is out today. 
So I understand on the one hand, people go, listen, it's it's my family money. I can do whatever I want with it. Why does this have to be a whole regulatory thing? But on the other hand, if these are just hedge funds or RIAs acting as family offices, and it seems like they're just using a cozy term to skirt the realities of what they're doing, how do we know? Well, the challenge for the SEC is to figure out how many investors are affected, you know, regardless of their size. And we see now they can impact a lot of stocks and a lot of sectors of the market because of the $6 trillion. If they're not endangering individual regular retail investors, the SEC might argue and the family offices would argue they should not be regulated. Others say, look, you know, given that they can do whatever they want, they can leverage as much as they want, they can take whatever position, they can do things that hedge funds can't and not report any of it, there should be a more level playing field. Has the term family office become a misnomer? I mean, how many of these, so like a Michael Dell instrument, or, or we know wealthy individuals who obviously have a quote-unquote family office, but is that term what we think of it, or is it is it an old term being used to apply to a very typical range of investment activities and the likes? Yeah, these are global investment advisors that are advising one family, but basically they're dressed in the cloak of a family office. But for all intents and purposes, I mean, they're hiring the top talent on Wall Street. Right. They're managing billions of dollars. They're across asset classes across the globe. If, if you took the family office name off them, you would say this is a global investment company. But because they're a family office, they don't have to report anything. And that's what people say it needs to change. But that's also why we think it's important to tell our viewers, A, who they are, what they're doing with their, with their money, and where they see opportunities that perhaps other investors could also piggyback. Absolutely. We, we just follow the money and the talent. That's right. And this is where we're finding it today. Robert, thanks so much. We look forward to hearing more about this. Our Robert Frank. Meantime, it's been a tough year for restaurant stocks. They've been hit by inflation, now recession fears. McDonald's holding up better than its former, uh, what do we call it, when they used to own it, Chipotle, uh, holding up better than a sit-down chain like Darden as well. But what happens if recession hits? We'll speak with an analyst who says that's the scenario restaurant investors need right now. He will explain why. Plus, Starbucks' new interim CEO, also its old one, and he's got plans to remake the company he made in the first place. Stock is down since he took over as interim CEO. We'll have what Howard Schultz has in store for Starbucks next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Restaurant stocks have been under a lot of pressure this year as there have been so many headwinds from rising food prices to the labor shortage. Whether it's Chipotle, Wendy's, Shake Shack, Dine Brands, all down double digits. But my next guest says a recession is what every restaurant investor should hope for. Thinks it could be good for the sector. Nick Setian is senior equity analyst covering restaurants at Wedbush. People have been tweeting me all hour, Nick, how you can possibly say this. Uh, so please tell, what's the thesis here? Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, restaurants just need a reset, right? I mean, when you just look at restaurants, uh, uh, you know, just 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 the sector by itself, uh, you can really understand why the Fed needs to do what they're doing, right? I mean, what we have is 18% type of food cost inflation, double-digit labor inflation. You can't comp. You can't have the type of sales growth you need in any environment uh, to 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 grow earnings or even that. And so. And ultimately, what, what restaurant investors should be happy with is a, is a recession that results in lower food costs, in easing labor costs. And when you look at you know, the 2008 to 2010 period, 
That's exactly what happened. So in other words, to put it differently, what you're saying is it's not obviously that uh, restaurants want a recession. It's that inflation is so bad that some kind of slowdown that cures that is the best they can hope for right now. I mean, it's really the only solution at this point. You just can't have this type of inflation, ongoing inflation. And we're not really seeing any signs that labor inflation is going to go away, even if food costs normalize. Uh, how long can you take, you know, high single digit type of pricing, right? I mean, groceries are even higher than that. So um, we really do need a reset here. But is that reset, this is again, I, I love this because it's like the macro argument we're having. And there are some who say, but that reset's happening organically and, you know, things can't go up to the moon and they're, they're going to correct. And, and what, so explain why you think that's maybe not going to take place on its own without a little bit of a shove. Well, you know, the expectation of a recession uh, is actually uh, showing up in, in some commodity prices already, right? So in our opinion, June actually marked uh, uh, the, the peak of inflation. Uh, and so we've seen things like wheat, corn, oats, you know, feed costs that tend to be the leading indicators uh, of, of, of overall food costs peaking in, in June and having come down along with the overall commodity complex, right? Things like uh, copper, gas, et cetera, gasoline, et cetera. So uh, there are some early signs that inflation may have peaked based on the, expect the expectation of a recession. Uh, and so hopefully that, that only continues. And I know you're not trying to make the call yourself whether we're going to actually be in one or at what month or what time. But what would you say about what's priced into the restaurant stocks? Can you own them here or do you, do you now have to wait? I think the risk reward is heavily skewed towards reward. Um, the sentiment is as negative as, as, I've, as I've, you know, seen it ever in over 10 decades of covering the space. Uh, I, I don't even see any criminal sellers at this point, right? The valuations... Uh, even during a financial crisis, the, the company on valuations uh, dropped in the low teens. We're right under 14 times right now in terms of PE. Uh, on the franchise name, they dropped in the very low 20s right now. We're at 20.8 times PE. So I think we're, if not at trough level in terms of valuation, we're, we're there. Again, that's barring a you know, liquidity crisis that just results in a sell-off, sure. uh, uh, you know, a blind sell-off. But uh, you know, X that sort of short few days or a few weeks of a, of a liquidity crisis. That's really where the troughs are in restaurants. I'm surprised. They tend to happen, and they and they, and they, and they tend to happen before the, the last round of earnings revisions take place. Great point, an important point for as an entry point. So Wendy's, I can see being on the list, um, even a wing stop. Why Dynequity? Uh, why would that one to you be especially attractive here? Yeah, Dine, they, they own, you know, IHOP and Applebee's, right? And they're completely franchise concepts. And so uh, you don't have to worry about the margin headwinds. Uh, they generate over 10% uh, free cash flow right now. So they can buy a ton of stock. The balance sheet is, is as good as I remember. It's certainly much better than, than the pre-COVID period. Applebee's is now a, a stable, uh, some may even argue, a, 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 a low, uh, you know, percentage grower top line. Uh, versus a, a contracting story for, for years and years pre-COVID. Right. So uh, that story has transformed dramatically pre-COVID versus post-COVID. So I think, you know, that's a name. At a 10% plus free cash flow yield, uh, that investors, you know, yeah. can, can, can make it, bigger mistakes out there. Yeah, <laughs> and they have. Uh, but that's interesting. It's been balance sheet transformation post-COVID, which a lot of people, myself, wouldn't have thought. Nick, thanks for your time and for the provocative call today. Thanks for having me, Karen. Nick Setian of Wedbush. Now, shares of Starbucks are down 33% this year, with Howard Schultz returning for another stint as CEO to turn things around. But he's sharing his plan for the next chapter, and our Kate Rogers has those details. Kate? 
Hey, Kelly, CEO Howard Schultz is out with a new letter to Starbucks partners today talking about the reinvention of the company's next chapter. Schultz has been meeting with partners and suppliers in listening sessions since returning to the company in April and said in the letter, quote, it's clear we're living in a changing world where economic, societal and operational pressures are colliding, adding, quote, Starbucks business as it is built today is not set up to fully satisfy the evolving behaviors, needs and expectations of our partners or customers. To modernize the Starbucks experience, Schultz tells partners he's introducing a new set of principles to guide the process. They are safety, welcoming, and kindness in stores, advancement and opportunity for partners, well-being for one another and communities, shared power, shared accountability, and shared success. The specific programs and initiatives to deliver on those principles here will be revealed, he says, in the weeks to come. New programs under Schultz that have been announced for partners like May's wage hikes and additional training did not immediately extend to those unionized stores as Starbucks said that those benefits needed to be added into contracts with those stores since they'd organize. This all comes on the heels of a weekend of workers on strike at a location in Buffalo and today an NLRB trial begins in Buffalo as well seeking injunctive relief for fired workers. It is expected to go on for months. Kelly back over to you. Also a little awkward they had to pull the breakfast sandwich because I thought food was one of his big (laughs) things. I don't know exactly what the deal is there. How are the unions responding to all of this? Well, the union is basically saying pretty rich to put out a letter like this on on a day when we're just coming off of a weekend of strikes and this trial begins. And they actually sent over a statement that says, in part, quote, thousands of workers across the country are organizing to make Starbucks a better company and place to work. If Howard Schultz was serious about imagining a better future for Starbucks, he would end the company's aggressive and unethical union busting campaign and work with us. So they are clearly not happy in continuing their fight there. Uh, But again, he did suspend that buyback and um, dividend when he did take over back in April. Remember, they're investing, you know, about a billion dollars in wage hikes over the course of several years, and they did institute wage hikes and more training, which was one big uh, sticking point for the union at stores. But again, it needs to be negotiated into these contracts with the union organized stores, Kelly. So kind of a messy situation. Indeed. Kate, thank you very much, our Kate Rogers. Speaking of messy situations, Europe is caught between a rock and a hard place. They want to go green, but they have to keep the lights on. We'll tell you what they're saying now and which stocks could benefit. Stay with us. Europe is facing a potential energy crisis, trying to provide power to heat homes and cool them while also fighting climate change. Lawmakers officially now classifying nuclear energy as green. Pippa Stevens is here with why it could be a boost for uranium stocks. Well, Kelly, this green classification is a huge win for nuclear power because it falls under the EU's taxonomy, which decides what counts as sustainable economic activities. And so nuclear's inclusion opens the door for potentially hundreds of billions of dollars from sustainability-focused investors. The policy, which has its fair share of critics, comes as Europe's energy crunch forces the bloc to look for alternatives, including nuclear power. Jonathan Hinsey from nuclear research firm UXC telling me the demand outlook has dramatically shifted from just a few months ago. Now, so far, that hasn't translated to gains for uranium stocks. Two funds that track the space, the URA and URNM, sharply lower for 2022. Performance across the largest players like Cameco, Kazatomprem, and NextGen Energy has been mixed. And this is despite spot prices remaining elevated. 
But Segre Capital's Arthur Hyde said these stocks have been unfairly hit by action in the broader market. Demand is industry-specific and largely independent from economic cycles. He's maximum bullish right now, given this what he calls a sea change for nuclear power since Russia's invasion. You'd feel like it has to be, so we'll watch to see if those stocks catch up. Pippa, thank you very much, our Pippa Stevens. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.